0: Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode three in the book of 1 Peter entitled A Holy Priesthood Offering Spiritual Sacrifices where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter two, verses one through 12. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today?
1: What an exciting passage we're gonna study at the beginning of 1 Peter 2, but just if there's just one concept that I want to bring out, and that uh, it it is this, the the idea that we were created and redeemed to declare the praises of Christ, Hmm. uh, the praises of God. And that we're going to see that so powerfully with, with a complex image that Peter uses of being both a spiritual temple and a spiritual priesthood, but all things leading to declaring the praises of God. So I'm excited to look into this today.
0: I am as well. I love that. Created and redeemed to declare the praises of God. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Andy, as we begin, why is Peter's command to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander so vital for our spiritual health? And what are the dangers of living in such sins?
1: Well, again and again, Peter is going to be telling these people to be holy because God is holy. And so the idea of sanctification of purification from all sin as essential to the Christian life comes forefront. Uh, Again, Peter, I think, is thinking about these Christians in in light of their witnessing uh, to lost people who are observing their lives. And if they're going to uh, be witnesses, if they're going to be energetically fruitful and active in the world, and if they're just gonna live life glorifying to God in their church and in their family, in their neighborhood, etc., wherever they are, they're going to have to be holy as God is holy. And now here he gets specific. This is a very brief sin list, but that's what it is. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. So these are five sins. And they all would be devastating to our lives, and they're part of pagan lives. Like malice, for example, would be a settled hatred for an enemy. Um it's the kind of thing where somebody's done you wrong and you just cannot forgive. Well, that's mm. just not possible for Christians to be unable to forgive. And then deceit, to, to deceive others, to lie, to use deceitful business practices, things like that. Hypocrisy, the idea of, of putting on a mask to cover up your true identity, uh, especially religious hypocrisy, to look holy on the outside, but inside you're corrupt and evil. Get rid of that. Be what you actually appear to be, hmm. and and then envy to 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 yearn for somebody else's possessions or or situation in life to be covetous, greedy, these kinds of things, and then slander. It's connected to malice also, but the idea of using your tongue to destroy somebody who's not present, saying s- slanderous things, is to cut them down so that they're reputation is slaughtered because of your words. So these are just representational sins. They're just things that we do that are evil and wrong. And you have to, he says, get rid of them. And you're like, was it that simple? Well, keep in mind, we're not slaves to sin. We don't ever need to do any of these sins ever again. We've been set free. Mm. That's what Romans 6 tells us. So yes, get rid of all of
0: these things. Now, in verse two, he goes on to say that like newborn infants, we should long for the pure spiritual milk. Why should Christians crave the milk of the word? What will the milk of the word do for us? So it <clears throat> seems like he's
1: dealing with relatively new Christians here. And so you think about milk versus meat. Those are the, That's kind of the basic distinction of Christian teaching. There's milk teaching and then there's meat teaching. So milk would be the basics of the Christian faith, the basics of the gospel, God, man, Christ, Uh, Response, those kinds of things, and just the basic truths of Christianity. And they have tasted, he's gonna say in verse three, that the Lord is good. And uh, he says, that's the milk. You're drinking the milk now, just like you're a newborn baby. And you look at a newborn baby, how eagerly they nurse and how much they yearn for that life-giving milk from their mother. And it gives them all the nutrients and, and all of the vitamins they need. It's just an amazing thing that God has done. So like that, you should yearn for it. The issue has to do with craving. It has to do with the desire. Mm. You should be after God's word all the time. Now that you're uh, converted, now that you're Christian, you should show it by just delving into God's word all the time. And if you do that, you will grow up in your salvation. So the idea there is sanctification. You're already saved, but you need to grow. And he's gonna say it in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. So that's the idea of, of growing to full maturity. You do it by the word. Now, as you grow, at some point you develop spiritual teeth and you're able to start chewing on the deeper truths of of Christianity, the, mm. the harder doctrines, the ones that cross us a little bit, the ones that are harder to understand. He's even going to get to one of those doctrines in this text today. Mm-hmm. There are difficult teachings
0: that take a while to be able to comprehend. Yeah. Now you mentioned verse 3 a moment ago. Mm. How can we taste that the Lord is good? What does mm. Peter mean here?
1: taste and see that the lord is good it's such a uh, it's experiential Um, we have a sense of the goodness of christ usually when it just says the lord we think of jesus and i tell you as i study the gospels i'm I'm memorizing mark's gospel right now and i see christ's character i see his power his healings but i also see his tenderness his Mm -hmm. wisdom the way he deals with different kinds of people differently depending on what they need There's such a goodness to the Lord, and we've just begun to taste that. The book that I've written on heaven that I'm so excited about that's being published this year talks about a a dynamic heaven in which we are forever learning more and more of the goodness of God. We've just had a taste now, but in heaven we're going to sit at the banqueting table of His glory forever. We're going to be feasting on the full dimensions of His glory. But now that you've tasted a little bit of the goodness of Christ get in more and more by the ministry of the word, by drinking that spiritual milk, you've tasted how good it is, then drink more and more.
0: Yeah, it's such a helpful image, and I think one we understand just naturally, right, that when we've tasted a good thing, we want, we want more of that good yeah. thing. That's a great image. Yeah,
1: I, you know, I love it. I love little kids, hmm. uh, toddlers, like maybe sitting in a stroller, having their first ice cream, <laughs> and it's cold and shocking, and their face is like, whatever, and then they're like, more? More. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> have more. That was that right, was, that was, was a shock to my ahead. system <laughs> in all the best ways possible. Yeah, they want. Oh, it's mm. the, both of those aspects: the shock and
0: then the more, more thing. And that's mm. so good. Yes. So, it really, in verses four through twelve, kind of the rest of what we're looking at, we get this image of living stones and a holy priesthood. Mm. How is Jesus the living stone? Mm. And what is the significance of the fact that Jesus was rejected by men, mm. but in God's sight? chosen and precious
1: well the stone image he's going to use um, architecturally here that there's the spiritual temple rising and jesus was the foundation or the first corner um, in ephesians 2 uh, paul uses the I- image of Christ as the foundation, also 1 Corinthians 3, no one can lay any foundation other than the foundation already laid, which is Christ. So generally the image with a stone is, is one of immutability, one of stability. Hmm. It doesn't move, it doesn't go anywhere. But then we've got this image of a living stone. So it's, it's interesting, scripture is like that. Scripture is an unshakable rock, but it's also living and active. So it's amazing how an unchanging word can still be living and active. But then, in a, in a moment, he's going to call us living stones, and mm-hmm. we actually are growing and changing and being transformed. So I think primarily the image here is of the rising temple, of which Christ is the is the central foundational stone. But he's living; he's a living stone, and uh, he's going to pick up on that image uh, from Psalm one eighteen, the stone the builders rejected. So I think that's what he's talking about here: Christ
0: as the as the rejected stone. Mm. Now verse 5 is where Peter introduces that idea that we too are living stones. How, how so? Yeah, so we are living
1: stones, Jesus the rejected stone. And it's interesting how it says he's both, he's rejected but chosen by God hmm. and precious to him. And, and so it's amazing. Jesus in history, 20 centuries of history, is by far, no one's even close, by far, both the most hated and the most loved man ever. He's the most spoken against and slandered and also the most beloved. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. And, we're, and Peter's gonna develop this idea of a, of a split of different reactions to Jesus. Rejected by some, but de- delightful to others. But then he uses that image about us, saying that we're living stones. Now here we're completely getting into the image mm-hmm. of a holy temple rising in the Lord, as Paul gives us in Ephesians 2. We are part of a building project. Uh, and if, this is a vital image for me. Uh, Human beings who are being redeemed are living stones, but they're quarried from Satan's dark kingdom. And they're quarried by servants of the living God, human beings who go as evangelists and missionaries. Mm. And we scale the walls of Satan's dark kingdom, the gates of Hades, so to speak, and we get in there on a, on a very dangerous rescue mission, and we see these living stones quarried out and rescued out of Satan's dark kingdom, bringing in the image from Colossians. You've been translated or transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But here the image is architectural. So there's lots of different metaphors for the church. There's body of Christ, who so are members of it, but here's the idea of an architectural work. We are living stones. So we are in a living relationship with God but we're also set in the walls
0: never to move. So there's a sense of security there as well, living stones. Hmm. And Peter uses two images really in verse 5 of Mm -hmm. this spiritual house that's rising and Mm -hmm. a holy priesthood. How how does verse 5 and these two images shed light on the Christian life?
1: It's really fascinating. So you think about the tabernacle first and then the temple in the Old Testament, a place of worship where the people, the Jews would go, and that's where the priests would, uh, would offer sacrifices that the people would bring even in reference to their own sins, that whole image. So you've got two different things. The Let's go over into the temple image because it fits a little bit better here. An actual structure, uh, a temple that you go to, and within it, there's the Levitical priesthood, the sons of Aaron, the descendants of Aaron, the high priest, and the Le- Levites would be there to handle the animal sacrificial system. Peter says you're both. You're both the structure, the actual temple, you are the temple, and you are the priests within the temple offering up sacrifices to God. It's an amazing image. And so the idea here is one of unchanging stability. Once you're in the wall, nothing can ever get you out, nothing can ever take you out. But then there's the idea of activity, of, of a vibrant ministry that the holy priesthood is doing, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what are these? Well, Paul says that you should offer your body as a living sacrifice. So you you just offer yourself to God, ready to serve him in any way. But then you're going to do certain good works that he has prepared in advance that you should walk in them. So, for example, um, Paul in Philippians 4 talks about money that was given to help him in his incarceration from the Philippians. And he says um, that those gifts are a fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Hmm. And then he says, my God will supply all your needs. So he's gonna make up the money you sent, but the money is the offering. The money is fragrant and delightful and beautiful. It's just money, It's, it's used for buying supplies and different things like that but it was a spiritual offering. So when you give money to the poor and needy, you give money to missions or give money to the church, Mm. you're offering up a sacrifice. Prayers are sometimes seen to be a fragrant offering up to God. The bowls of incense in the book of Revelation are the prayers of the saints. So the offering of prayers is a fragrant uh, sacrifice. The lifting up of the hands in worship, these are fragrant sacrifices. Any good work we ever do by the power of the Spirit is a fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God.
0: Hmm. And I love the way he concludes that, right? Through Jesus Christ, reminding mm-hmm. us just again of the blood-bought access that we have and, and the ability we have through Christ to even be pleasing to God. In and of itself, everything we do
1: is defiled. Hmm. We, we are even now as justified, uh, forgiven, sons and daughters of living God, corrupt and sinful every day. We have indwelling sin. The very thing we hate, we do. Hmm. And the thing we ought to do, we don't do. And so out of that kind of defiled pipeline comes water effectively to drink. And who would want to drink out of a polluted pipe? But God in his goodness is able to purify what comes through people like you and me mm-hmm. and, and accept it, it's acceptable to him through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So the author to Hebrews says, everything had to be sprinkled with blood, cleansed with blood, and so it is, but spiritually. We're cleansed with the blood of Christ, so our sacrifices are acceptable to God.
0: What does verse 6 teach about Jesus, and what does it mean that all who trust in Christ will not be put to shame?
1: Well, I think this is where Peter got his whole image of a living stone. He got Psalm 118, verse 22, Behold, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So that's a quote from Psalm 118. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus used this in reference to himself during his ministry. You see this in the Synoptic Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. They, they quote this actual scripture. And so he's talking uh, about himself. And the key idea there is the rejection Uh, the stone the builders rejected. So that's what he's zeroing in on here, is that this stone that was laid in Zion, in in the spiritual realms, um, is chosen and precious and a cornerstone. Now a cornerstone is um, a perfectly positioned and and carved stone that's just 90 degrees, absolutely like laser straight, or as straight as they possibly could make it, um, that would just define how the wall would go, the rest mm. of the wall. It's like the, it was, everything was oriented off of that cornerstone. Or it could be the capstone too, the completion and beautiful stone at the top. Jesus is both, he's the Alpha and the Omega. But uh, that's the idea here. And God laid this stone in Zion. He chose Jesus to be the foundation of this spiritual temple. And even though the builders reject it, which we'll get to in a moment, God chose him. And, and everything is, comes off of that. And then we become like him, living stones set in the walls of this spiritual temple. And if we trust in him, Jesus, the chosen and precious cornerstone, we will never be put to shame. Mm. What that means is we'll not be ashamed of ourselves on Judgment Day, we'll not be ashamed of our choice. We won't think, boy, that was a mistake following Jesus. That will never happen. Mm. We will be ever increasingly delighted we made that choice. And he will deliver us from shame, which is being exposed as wicked sinners on Judgment Day and beyond, we will not be put to shame ultimately, but we will be radiant and glorious in heaven because of the work of Jesus.
0: Hmm. You know, before we started this episode, you and I were talking about verses seven and eight, Mm -hmm. specifically verse seven. Uh, Who's the focal point of verses seven and eight and how do these verses shed some insight into the Jews' rejection of Christ?
1: All right, so the issue that he's addressing here is the rejection of Christ and how he's, cho- he's called a chosen and precious cornerstone. But he's not precious to everyone. Mm. You know, he is called by his enemies a deceiver of the people, a blasphemer. And, you know, he, he was hated as, as somebody who was a false prophet misleading the people. It is by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he drives out demons. That's not honor, mm. that's not any esteem. So who is it that honors Jesus? Well, certainly the Father honored him. You know, when he said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And he honored him by raising him from the dead and seated, sitting him at his right hand in the heavenly realms in glory. But he's also honored by us, by the elect, hmm. by the ones who believe. We honor him and give him glory. So the honor goes, the preciousness goes to Jesus. But the question is who sees him that way? Who sees him as precious? And the answer is the converted elect do. But to those who do not believe, he is despised and rejected. The builders being the leaders of the Jewish nation, the Mm -hmm. stone the builders rejected is the one that became the uh, cornerstone. And so uh, Jesus was rejected almost universally by the Jewish nation. There were many, many Jews that followed him, but many rejected him as well.
0: Yeah. So would that be true then, that it's not just uh, the Jews that would reject him and Mm -hmm. those who would be put to shame, but that that also expands out beyond just those specific builders, as it were. Yeah, people all over the world hear this gospel
1: message, and honestly, the overwhelming majority reject it. Hmm. They really do, Mm -hmm. and this, Peter is explaining why they reject it. He said, he's a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Hmm. They stumble over aspects of the gospel. They stumble over the fact that they're sinners needing salvation. They stumble over the idea that God could become a man. Now, that's found a foundational stumbling. They, they stumble over the idea that God, having become a man, died on a Roman cross That's foolishness to some people and Mm -hmm. offensive to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks and and a stumbling block to the Jews that, that their Messiah, their king would be would die, you know, under under a curse. And so they stumble over different aspects of Jesus and of the gospel message. Hmm. Uh, he is the stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And then Peter says they stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. Yeah. So this is the doctrine, what we would call of double predestination. Hmm. And it's very, talk about meat. There are few meatier doctrines in that. That God before the foundation of the world chose the elect and passed over the non-elect Basically, they're identified as reprobate, and when they hear the message, they reject it, they disobey, Mm. and it's what they were destined for. Now, however much we struggle with it, it is what Peter teaches through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it is a deep doctrine, it's not easy to understand, Um, but they are following the inclinations of their own free will. It's free in this sense, they can choose how to sin. Mm. And in this way, they sin by rejecting Jesus every time.
0: Whenever they hear of Christ, they reject him. So we've seen Jesus described in these verses as a cornerstone, stone that the builders rejected, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And really, you just helped us see what's meant by Peter's assertion here that they were destined to disobey this message related um, to who Christ was. Verse 9 seems to stand then in stark contrast to verse 8. And this is a massive question. Mm. But what does it mean to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people for his own possession? And how mm. should how should verse 9 affect our lives as Christians?
1: It's incredible. The lavish blessings he gives on rebels like you and me and we're no different than the reprobate except that we were chosen by God and he's worked grace in us. We're vessels of mercy. Mm. Um, but we, we have the same sin patterns. We struggle with the same evil things that they do. But we were chosen by God to be holy and blameless in a sight, chosen before the foundation of the world. So we're a chosen people. There's no pride in that, no pride at all. But there is a, a sense of incredible grace and thankfulness we should have. And then a royal priesthood. That's a combination of a king-priest. We are both, in some sense, kings and, in some sense, priests. And we've already talked about how we are priests, but we are being given a kingdom and we will be given subdomains and sections uh, of the new heaven, new earth, I believe, uh, possessions of our own that will be ours for all eternity. And we will reign with him and he will be, we will be a kingdom of priests, it says in the book of Revelation. Mm. And he will be the king of many kings and the Lord of many lords uh, forever in heaven. We are a royal priesthood and we're a holy nation. Holy is set apart under God as his prized possession and separated from evil, from darkness. God is light and in him there's no darkness and we are called to be a holy nation. And then a people of God's own possession. He owns us, we are not our own. We're bought with a price, so he owns us. Hmm. And, and we have that sense of being his possession because he made us and also because he bought us. These, these titles are quite remarkable and rich. Uh, we should meditate on them continually.
0: And the purpose statement is is pretty amazing, too, as it gives uh, kind of the whole reason why we are chosen and made to be a royal priesthood, a holy mm. nation, a people for his own possession. It says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness mm. into his marvelous light. How should that purpose clause in verse nine affect our speech, our lives? How should that affect us?
1: Well, that's going. that purpose will go on into eternity. Hmm. From the moment that we're born again, we begin declaring the excellencies. The And, and to me, excellencies could, the, the plural of it, not just the excellence, but the excellencies, goes into what systematic theologians call attributes. So those are the perfections of God, the different things like his goodness, his mercy, his wisdom, his power. They're aspects of God's person and how he's dealt with us that we wanna highlight at different times. Sometimes we wanna talk about his power, sometimes about his long suffering, Hmm. sometimes about his wisdom, sometimes about his sovereignty. They're different aspects. They're not ever contradictory one to another, but they harmonize beautifully and together they were involved in our salvation, not just our own, but all our brothers and sisters from every tribe, language, people, and nation these things all came together, and we're just beginning, Wes, to understand how excellent God is, the many excellencies. So we begin talking, we say, how excellent is our God? I also think this is a wonderful way uh, to do evangelism, that we're declaring the excellencies of God in front of lost people, Mm -hmm. talking about his power, um, his kindness, his mercy in front of others, because, he has called us, it says, out of darkness into his wonderful light. We were in darkness Mm. once ourselves. And now we can go back to those who are still in the darkness and shine the light and say, here, follow me and we'll get up out of this darkness. Uh, We've been rescued out of a dark pit Mm. and he lifted us up. And now we're called to go back down into the like William Carey said, I'll go down into the dark hole of heathenism, but you must hold the rope for me. We get to go back in, and when we get there, surrounded by people in the darkness, we get to shine with the light of the glory of God and get to declare the praises of him who sent Christ, who who through Christ did all these incredible miracles, who who poured out his wrath on Christ and, and displayed his justice at the cross and then raised his own son from the dead. These are the excellencies of God. This is the gospel. We get to do that, but it's not going to end in this life. In heaven forever, hmm. we will be studying, learning, and then declaring the excellencies of God. We will learn new things about God's glory in heaven and then wave upon wave of worship will happen in heaven.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And Peter really continues in this theme as he goes on, not only to talk about God's excellencies, mm-hmm. but even the way God has shown mercy mm-hmm. to his people, reflecting on who they once were and yeah. who they are now. How does verse 10 reveal the greatness of God's mercy to us in Christ? Once
1: you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You are outsiders. You are aliens. You are, mm-hmm. you are strangers to the covenant of grace. You are, you are you know, wild and, <laughs> and not part of God's covenant people. You were not a people, but now you are. Now you are actually the people of God. Once at one point you had not yet received mercy. So I think that goes to John three thirty six. 36. Whoever uh, believes in the Son has eternal life, but who rejects, whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. So we, we were in some mysterious way under the wrath of God until we had received mercy. And that happened the moment we were born again. When we trusted in Christ, all of that wrath was taken off of us and spiritually put on Christ in the eternal spiritual realms. So we have received mercy. That's who we were. That's who we are. Once at one point outsiders, now we are part of God's holy family.
0: Hmm. And even, even being brought in, it seems like Peter does still want his readers, his listeners to think like sojourners and exiles. In what way does thinking that way, help us to be holy in this world and abstain from fleshly lusts mm-hmm. as they wage war, pretty strong language, against our souls.
1: Well, it's amazing here, I, I never really put this together to this degree, but this is what i must say. You're either going to be an alien and stranger to God's world,
0: hmm.
1: or you're gonna be an alien and stranger to this world. Yeah. One or the other, they're pitted against each other. And so at one point we were aliens and strangers to God's world, we were outsiders. And then once we were transferred over into the kingdom of light, then we're aliens and strangers in the old world, in the in the world of darkness. And you have to be that way, so live that way. As an alien and stranger here, first of all, look alien and strange. You think about people just getting off the boat in the 1890s or whatever; they're wearing old world clothing, and they're like, "Whoa!" You know, <laughs> you just look different. But you know, that's just outside trappings. That's not really it. It's that we don't join in with the lusts and the evils um, that people do. We don't. We don't um, take part in it. Um, and you know, that's what he says, is aliens and strangers abstain from lusts. And so we'll talk about that in a moment, because it's vital, but that's, that's how we're aliens. So we don't join in in the dirty joke. Mm. We don't join in in the filthy movie. We don't join in in getting drunk and carousing. We don't do that stuff. We did it in the past, he's gonna say in chapter four, you spent enough time doing it in the past. Don't do it again. So we're aliens and strangers. And we're gonna think differently. You know what? At times of elections, we're going to we're gonna look at issues differently than unsaved people will. Uh, we're going to act differently at, at key moments. So mm-hmm. we're aliens and strangers in this world.
0: Now, anything more that you want to say about yeah. abstaining from those fleshly lusts? Yeah, there is. Because <laughs> we are, at war. like you said, we're citizens of one country mm-hmm. or another, and they're not on peaceful terms with one another. And so if we're citizens of, of God's country, God's world, then... Yeah. Uh, those fleshly lusts are at war against us, how, how should we abstain from?
1: Yeah, abstain means just to deny them. We, we, uh, we say no. Hmm. We, you know, it says in scripture that the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And we just say no, we abstain, we, we, we will not indulge. And lusts are evil desires. So what, what evil desires are, they're good desires that God has given us that goes beyond the boundaries he's set up into, hmm. into evil things. So the desire for, for food becomes gluttony. The desire for sleep becomes uh, being a sluggard. Uh, the desire for, for marital relations with your, with your spouse becomes all manner of sexual immorality, including pornography, homosexuality, um, you know, promiscuity, all kinds of evil things. These are evil, evil desires. Now, what the text says is that they wage war against your soul. And uh, we were talking about this word before we went on. It's just, there's this intelligent, strategic warfare. Mm -hmm. Satan, Mm -hmm. his demons are studying us and know our weaknesses and they come after us. We're not unaware of Satan's schemes and we are at war. We are being fought against by the world, the flesh and the devil every day of our lives. And so Wes, I converted to faith in Christ my junior year in college, it was October of 1982. And so I'm coming up on next year, 40 years of being a Christian. Mm. I've been at war for 40 years, an invisible war. Satan and his demons and the world and all of my inner lusts have been waging war against my faith in Christ and they haven't conquered it yet. Mm. The only way that's possible is sustaining grace of, of God. But I have a role to play. I have to abstain from those things. The more I indulge evil desires, the stronger they get and the heart of the battle is tomorrow. So if you want a much easier battle against your lust a year from now, say no today. Put Mm. on the full armor of God and put sin to death today. Yeah.
0: Andy, verse 12, I think, is a phenomenal place for us to land the plane for this conversation, but it's also so relevant as we think about the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of gospel advance. Mm -hmm. Peter talks about how our personal holiness is a key part of our mission to unbelievers. How does that unfold in verse twelve? And what final thoughts do you have?
1: We are to be such good people, good good um, employees, good citizens, good neighbors, good husbands or wives, good parents. Um, th- there's just a should be a radiant, shining goodness to our lives that even though they accuse us of doing wrong things, which they will it'll be obvious that their accusations are based on ignorance. They don't know who we are. Hmm. And so we need to, to show that it's a lie. Um, the early accusations by the Romans were that, that Christians were, were cannibals because they ate the flesh and drank the blood of Jesus. They didn't understand the Lord's Supper. That we were incestuous because we loved the brothers and sisters in Christ <laughs> and we had love feasts that they could not understand. All they could think of were orgies. No, it was Christian fellowship. It was prayer. It was singing worship to Jesus. It was holy and pure. They were ignorant. They didn't know who we were. And they accuse us of, of sedition, but we find our, ourselves to be to be you know, more obedient, submissive to any and every command that, that Caesar ever gave that we can possibly obey. We obey. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were completely obedient to everything Nebuchadnezzar commanded, except that they wouldn't bow down to the idol. So you, know, you just see that obedience um, giving the lie to the fact that we're seditious and trying to overthrow the empire. So live such good lives among the pagans, that, though even though they wrongly, ignorantly accusing you of, of, of doing wrong, they may see those beautiful good deeds and they may glorify God on the day of Christ's second coming, in other words, become Christians. Yeah. So our internal journey of holiness feeds the external journey of gospel advance.
0: May it be so of us. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been episode three in the book of 1 Peter. We would invite you to join us next time for episode four entitled, Submission to Authority, where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and
1: build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at TwoJourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching